This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everybody, we got Santiago back in action we missed you, Santi. We mi- I missed you on the last couple of episodes, my friend. Where uh, what's what's going on? I thought I brought on this like uh, this great co-host for the show, and then you abandoned me for like two episodes in a row. It's getting really sad. This is what I get, you know. This is this is the crypto. This encompasses everything about crypto, right? You you're MIA like one week, and they're like, oh, you're out, you're out. But you unacceptable. So much. Unacceptable, and I have no no good excuse for that other than making it up in this and future episodes. That's what I good. always try good. to do. What do you- what what are you doing? Buying more like Harry Potter books or something, or uh, what's going on? Uh well, uh, yes, and other stuff too. I've I've taken a liking for rare books because I've been thinking a lot about like okay, like I started collecting NFTs, and I, I was thinking about this the other day. Like you remember when the Apple Watch first came out? Everyone was saying watches, traditional watches, are going to be dead. And and then you've seen these resurgence of like I don't know if you watched this. I've taken a like it like this watch market has totally exploded. Like th- you can't find regular watches, especially rare watches like Patek Philippe's and Audemars Piguet's and Rolex and other stuff. And I think it's sort of like I heard someone say this. Actually, it was John Mayer. Actually, he's a big watch collector, and he says like in a world where you can find things so easily, information and you know a digital watch. Like an, an iWatch tells you, an Apple Watch tells you everything you need and more, right? Biometrics and it's crazy, right? It's so sophisticated. It's the most advanced watch ever, right? Arguably, but still, there's this idea that you want to do. It's sort of like a counterculture. I don't know if counterculture is the right word, but it's sort of it's interesting to me because it is that people want to go back to collecting regular watches because I think you know, ultimately people want to differentiate. And so I think like, ultimately I was thinking a lot about that in the context of collecting NFTs and, um, and yeah, I think ultimately people always want to differentiate. And I still, to this day, every time I tweet about NFTs, it's the, the time where I get the most amount of comments and, and people that I hate on NFTs. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but like there's, there is just this crowd that really hates on NFTs because they don't think it's art. They don't think it's like real stuff. They think it's a scam. And to me, it's, it's really exciting when I see that because it's, I don't know, I feel like uh, I'm drawn to that. And ri- books are like that too, you know, in a world of information, digital, you know, you can find, to me, rare books are sort of like really interesting because they're like the blockchain. They're immutable pieces of content that was created at one specific point in time. Uh, and it's really kind of hard to like rip off a page because you notice that, right? Uh, it's pretty interesting, like really simple stuff. Uh, it, we're trying to do some of that in the digital context, which is hard. Anyways, we're rambling, yeah. but I've been thinking yeah. a lot about this. No, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Like we, I think the more technology progresses, the more things that have uh, just like feeling and like meaning in like the this like old school world will get more and more valuable. Like you think about record, uh, like vinyls vinyls exactly. when vinyls existed and then you moved to albums and vinyls weren't weren't that valuable and then you moved to like cassette tapes or whatever or whatever whatever the progression was there and then you moved to spotify not really valuable and now it's like now that like we're, we live in a full spotify apple music world now vinyls are getting really valuable again by the way mm-hmm. nft hate do i remember it do i know it yes i posted this thing like two and a half like two months ago nfts equal digital status i got ratioed like nobody's business got over five thousand quote tweets on it saying yeah. i mean this saying some saying some mean things santi it's yeah. very upsetting hey well you know i think as an investor you always kind of look at that and it was like this with bitcoin back in 2012 and i got first discovered it then ethereum then like tokens right there was a time where tokens were just taboo and you know time and time again you know i I get really excited when when I hear so many visceral reactions and like people just jump to conclusions about this stuff and and then I was looking last night I mean so many artists throughout their life like never reached like you know 
the fame that they got, even like it took years, even after their death. And so to me, it's just always a gentle reminder to like, you know, most people kind of want to be told, want to go to a museum and be told this is what is of cultural relevance and significance. Right. And I think that in a world where things move much faster and you have the opportunity to kind of discover stuff and collect stuff because you like it and you affiliate with it. And I don't know, you don't, you shouldn't wait for anyone to tell you that. Yeah. All right, guys, speaking of Bitcoin, speaking of collectibles, we've got a good episode coming Four big topics today. One is we're going to continue talking about what we talked about briefly last week, just the Bitcoin narrative. Bitcoin is back, baby. That's what I think. I don't know if Santiago agrees. Bitcoin narrative is is changing. We're going to talk about that. Uh, BlockFi gave 100 million bucks uh, to a combination of 32, 32 different states, if I remember correctly, and, uh, and the SEC. So that's super fun. We're going to talk about that. BlockFi, SEC, what that means moving forward. Social tokens. I'm going to stamp our claim. Empire is getting into social tokens. Talk about that. I think it's coming soon. Uh, the social t- token narrative will start to pick up. Talk about what it means and maybe some unintended consequences. And then last but not least, M&A. It's been some interesting M&A that fell, that went really under the radar. And I think that it should should have been talked about more. So we're going to talk about DeFi native M&A. Then obviously get into the news, big money stories, big NFT stories, a little bit of politics, a little bit of TradFi getting into the metaverse and stuff like that. But before we do, marketing team is going to get pissed at me if I do not shout out permissionless. I know you guys hate this. I actually know you guys hate this because I've gotten DMs about stop shouting out permissionless. But... We added a noteworthy new speaker, Chris Dixon. Uh, you guys probably know Chris Dixon over at Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, Chris is uh, now going to be speaking at, speaking at Permissionless. So if you guys haven't snagged your ticket, we just dropped 250 more. I think we've sold like 210 out of the 250. So this batch will sell out pretty quickly. Um, big shout out to Chris if you're listening. Thanks for uh, jumping into the episode or into uh, the conference. So Santi, first things first, Bitcoin narrative. Bitcoin's narrative has changed a lot over the years, right? It used to be this like payments mechanism. Uh, for, for a long time, Bitcoin was this, uh, we, or we thought Bitcoin would be this like money on the internet, right? A, 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 a way to pay people in like this digital native way where there's no one sitting in the middle. And then people were like, okay, maybe that actually doesn't make too much sense because the value of it goes up and down. So maybe it shouldn't be like a unit of account, like a a money, a thing of money. Maybe it's more like gold, right? Maybe it's more of this like store of value. And people are like, okay, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. And then March 2020 hits and the Fed starts printing all this money and everyone's like, oh shit. Yeah, that's right. Store value narrative. Absolutely. Let's lean into that. Store value, digital gold, inflation hedge. Boom. That narrative takes off. And now what's happening is uh, the narrative is starting to change to censorship where Bitcoin is becoming kind of the symbol of like anti-censorship and things like that. And it's important to remember, Bitcoin does not change, right? There's no there's no CEO of Bitcoin. There's no CMO of Bitcoin. No one's changing the narrative of Bitcoin internally. Bitcoin doesn't do anything. Bitcoin is just a thing with 21 million Bitcoin. De- but depending on where there is institutional overreach, that tends to dictate the narrative, right? So when the Fed is overreaching that tends to drive home the store value narrative now when folks like canada um uh is overreaching with this like gofundme thing and maybe censoring some of the bank accounts of folks uh, that were tied to the trucker quote-unquote freedom convoy that is institutional overreach and that drives oftentimes the bitcoin narrative what are your thoughts on bitcoin's narrative switching from or i guess adjusting or moving from this store value narrative to a censorship narrative here to stay short-term thing what are your thoughts here no i I think it's first of all that observation is very very on point and i agree with it um the censorship thing is uh, clearly this canadian thing and look increasingly governments are just unpredictable in in many ways in their policies and the, the way the things that they do and i think you know we've been in this mega trend over the last 10 years of degrading trust in institutions First started with media, you know, fake news stuff, and and then just more broadly countries. Um, and so I think the world is becoming, in many ways, a better place, but also a more unstable place in certain places, and particularly in places where people don't expect it. You know, we talked about like in the U.S., like Ray Dalio came out saying, like, and other smart people um, have come out and say, look, there is a credible risk of civil war in this country. You know, the the inner U.S. is very different to the coast, and there's growing inequality and 
and you know, time and time again, we learned throughout history, governments, you know, anytime you have too much power in the hands of few people, it gets corrupted. And so I think the narrative around censorship is going to become increasingly important um, as governments just like who would have thought sitting here today that Canada would just come out with, with this type of, um, you know, new policy, which allows, I think, correct me here, Jason, that any bank can just freeze your assets without like due process, without just reasonable cause, like it just freeze your account. And, and I think that's really worrying. That's really concerning. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's more of like the appreciation that people have. I think the shift of a narrative from payments to store value was more dramatic this is more, what do you value more? I mean, ultimately gold is censorship in some capacity because I guess you can store it and use private security, but still you have it in, in a sovereign place, like in a country, right? Uh, unless you have it like in a yacht in international waters, right? But it's kind of hard, right? But, uh, but I, I do think that, you know, more and more people are going to value the censorship piece because I don't know, if, if a government like Canada comes out doing crazy stuff like this, then you're left wondering, um, who's next? Right, right. I mean, I think that's the exact point. I don't think, I don't think it's all about like Bitcoin has always been a censorship hedge for folks in developing nations, and I don't think mm -hmm. that's ever changed, or, and that's always been the case. But yeah, what happened in Canada is the prime minister said under the new under the Emergencies Act, banks can immediately freeze or suspend bank accounts without a court order, and can and will be protected from civil liability. And I think what's crazy here is not that that happens because we know that that happens all over the world, um, right? You're from your family's from South America, uh, if I remember correctly, or, or, or Mexico. Like that happens all the time in places like South America. And I think what's crazy here is that that it's the fact that it's it's Canada doing this, right? I think it's not that the narrative is shifting from inflation hedge to censorship hedge. It's that the uh, narrative is shifting in the Western world, right? I think today and this week and this month, the Western world is waking up to the fact that beyond anything else, Bitcoin is this censorship hedge. And it just, mm -hmm. I don't know. It just, uh, and then today, uh, actually the FBI, there's an announcement today. The FBI is forming a national cryptocurrency unit that's fo uh, entirely focused on seizing uh, virtual assets like Bitcoin, right? And I think there's always been this thing like, yeah, this would never happen in America, right? You're being paranoid. And and even I've said that. And now I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm reminded of that quote from um, the Lutheran pastor in Germany, right? And this is where he said, like, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And and then they came for the trade union, unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews and again, I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. And obviously that's a really powerful quote and uh, is more related to like Nazi Germany. But uh, it, it just reminds me that like eventually, I mean, yeah, this narrative. It's, of it's like a, it, the, the thing is, anytime you allow a government to take, it's sort of like you move the fence and you keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And look, I mean, you've seen it with COVID. I mean, some governments, like people living in Australia and some of these places, like policies are getting pretty crazy, right? You, you know, if you're not vaccinated, and they're really encroaching on 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 personal freedom and and you know the the right to just roam around and it's kind of concerning, right? And it's happening across the world. I'd say, like places like, to my knowledge, Austria and and Australia and to some extent New Zealand and you know. I understand the the need to like control COVID, but you know people are power hungry, and you give them a little bit, and they're not going to stop there. And so, I would do wonder where where does this all stop? And you know, the nice thing about the U.S. though is that it's always valued like this. This like individual states do have more autonomy. I think people are very skeptical of the government, like just culturally. I think. This very much still exists in the U.S. The ability to bear arms, I think, is still, for in large part, this you know self-defense, and you know I, I can appreciate why that is so important, right? Uh, and so, yeah, it's 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 very concerning. I don't think it's just singular to COVID. I think once governments see the ability to really kind of implement these type of policies, then are they going to stop just there? And when does it ever stop for COVID too? I mean, it's like, okay, are we going to, we're probably, you know, pandemics become, you know, milder, but 
at some point, you know, you know, do we, it's sort of like the, you remember this, I mean, this was the whole Snowden thing, right? After 9-11, the government started implementing a lot of surveillance policies to protect the national defense. But then does that give you the ability to like, like snoop in at every single person's calls and emails? And like, where do you at some point draw the line of striking a right balance between national security and privacy? Right. And that was a whole Snowden case, right? And I think we're seeing that now in other uh, policies across right. the world. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think it gets scary when you have things like what happened in Canada yesterday. The Canadian Justice Minister, David Lametti, says that if you're part of a pro-Trump movement, you should be worried about your bank account being frozen by the government, right? And so really quickly, like this becomes, you just you just can't do that, right? I don't care you know, what folks think about Trump or if you're liberal or Democrat or conservative or Republican or or where you fall in the political party, um, you have the, you are entitled to a bank account in a place like Canada and in a place like the US. Everybody should have access to something like a bank account. And for the government to be able to freeze your bank account based on what your political views are, that seems really, really scary. And I think Bitcoin is about to tie into this narrative and um, be a way for people to opt out of the system. And so I am I am personally getting quite bullish on Bitcoin right now after probably a six-month lull of finding it maybe a little bit boring as all this NFT and DeFi stuff was going on. I'm starting to rethink about how much Bitcoin should I have um, as it, it does feel like it's prime for a big breakout right now. Look, I mean, I think uh, some of the watch uh, I've, I've started to notice and hear from people in Canada, there's a mini run of the bank, especially people that are concerned protesters people that you know pro-trump folks and so you know it's no different than like cyprus you know, these things escalate and, and spiral out of control pretty quickly so something to monitor next week i mean how much of this is going to affect the banking system and and where are those funds going to go well naturally we know the solution to that you put it in bitcoin rails or, or you put it in stable coin right now you have a stable coin right when cyprus did this when there was a run of the bank in cyprus back in i think 2014 or so bitcoin rallied so hard but in this case, you have other alternatives like stable coins that you could, you know, okay, like maybe not USDC, but other alternatives, maybe DAI, okay, not perfect, but like others, you know, Frax and Rye and a bunch of others, right? Right, right. So, and this comes on the back, we'll move past the Bitcoin stuff in a sec, but this moves, this is right on the back of, you know, Russia, uh, the Russia news last week with um, uh, calling Bitcoin money or currency, KPMG buying Bitcoin, the El Salvador Bitcoin bonds, right? Just today. Uh, El Salvador announced that they're considering raising an additional $4 billion through these Bitcoin bonds. And then I think earlier this week, or maybe even today, Ukraine announced that they were making Bitcoin legal in the country. So um, just really interesting stuff, something to keep an eye on. Moving past Bitcoin, um, BlockFi. Um, BlockFi is a company actually just that's really near and dear to my heart because I've just seen Zach and Flory grow the thing from... I think I think I met Zach and Florida when they probably had like two two employees or like three or four employees, and I remember sitting uh, sitting in the room actually at Pomp's office at Morgan back when he was still at Morgan Creek uh, in New York. This was probably 2018 maybe, and um, you know the, I think Pomp was investing in like their seed round then, and they, Zach and Florida walked out of the room, and Pomp looks at me and goes, "That's going to be one of the biggest companies in crypto." And I was like, "Okay, sure, Pomp." And sure enough, BlockFi's had a tremendous amount of success, and just like hats off to Flory and Zach and. What happened this week was a little, um, I think there's an optimistic and a pessimistic take on it, right? So what happened is BlockFi announced on Monday that it would seek SEC approval for accounts that pay clients high yields for lending out their crypto as part of a record $100 million settlement with federal and state securities watchdogs. And I think basically how this breaks down is that the SEC is giving uh, or BlockFi is giving the SEC $50 million and it's giving some other states like $50 million. I've got some thoughts, but actually, I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about this and what you think. What are the second order impacts of this, and just what you think of the the settlement case and things like that? Sort of like that old adage, right? Ask for forgiveness, not permission. Um, <clears throat> feels to me like they've been unfairly punished. I mean, who's getting hurt here? To me, that's like the simple answer. Who is getting hurt in this case? Like, anytime. Look, I appreciate regulation in crypto is not is not straightforward. But I think if there's one guiding principle, one North Star is consumer protection. Make sure that people don't get hurt. And there's a lot of benefit and consumer surplus that is being created in crypto. I believe it. I think you believe it. It's hard to argue against it. Okay, there are scams. I understand that. That's not inherent to crypto. There are, you know, there should be more lack of 
understanding disclosures around, look, not everyone should be like margin trading and leverage. Like I understand those products. People need to be sophisticated, educated kids that have no financial knowledge should be perhaps trading on a hundred times leverage. And they don't even know they can get liquidated. But in this case, who's getting, where's the damage? Like, I don't know. Like if you're, if you deposit on BlockFi and you're getting a high yield, okay. Why not sue JP Morgan for like giving you a negative real rate? <laughs> it was it, a, you're probably more in tune to this. I'd love your opinion, but is it because of disclosures? Is it because, they might be insolvent in certain parts of their business or might be taking too much risk and there's capital efficiency ratios and consumer protection, like FDIC insurance. Like I'm, I'm really curious because this might set a precedent that I'm not really sure moves us in the right direction, which is what are we ultimately trying to solve for? Like we talk about like not to go on a tangent here, but accreditation rules. Like at this point, how many people that are knowledgeable investors because they're smart, because they understand a market, because they want to invest in certain things, can't do it because they don't make this arbitrary 200K or X for X amount in the US. Like, it really is like very archaic. Like, there are better ways to solve for these things. At the end of the day, like, there's more damage that has been made because people can't invest in startups because that's where most of the wealth has been created over the last, like, you know, in, in investing in technology. And so, I don't know. It feels unjust and unfair. Yeah. So, uh, so I've, I've got a bunch of thoughts on this. I mean, one is it, um, it's a really stupid idea by the SEC. I, I'm really happy for BlockFi that they're moving past this. I think it's a good idea. And there are people on Twitter saying, fight it till, fight it, you know, till the end. I disagree with that. And good, good on Zach and Flory and the whole team there. I think that this is actually just a horrible decision by the SEC because what you're doing is right. Incentives drive the world. And what you're doing is you've got two You've got two types of companies right now. You've got like the BlockFi's, um, the Gemini's, right? Do you remember Gemini's big ad campaign all over New York? Is like the revolution needs rules, and you can clearly see what they're doing, right? They're trying to show that they're the good guys, right? They, you know, they're regulated and things like that. And so you've got Gemini, and you've got Coinbase that's putting out all these, you know, guidelines to regulation and suggestions. And you've got FTX spent over a billion dollars on licenses last year, a billion dollars on licenses. Uh, you've got BlockFi, right? And the strategy here is really simple. Eventually, because there's no rules right now, so eventually when regulators write the rules, you want to have a hand in writing those rules and, and being in the rule in the room when those rules are written. And that's the strategy by someone like a BlockFi or a Gemini or an FTX or a Coinbase. And then there's the opposite strategy, which is DeFi. DeFi is basically saying, oh my God, we're staying as far away as possible from these folks we're going to launch our product and then race to decentralize so you can't touch us. And what the SEC is saying right now is that they're coming after the folks who are trying to be the good guys here. They're coming after the folks who are saying, look, we're working with you guys. You just haven't given us the rules, right? And so to me, it's just like you're incentivizing all of the right, th the wrong things if you're the SEC. And I think by doing this, the SEC is tipping, uh, if I'm a founder, Right. What you're telling me is the SEC, uh, as the SEC to do is you're going to push me and my company into DS decentralization, uh, and you're basically escalating conflict uh, just because of the incentive incentives that you're you're setting up here. Yeah, I don't know. I, I again, this is why teams have left the U.S. Um, so many U.S.-based investors can't invest in in startups and I call it ICOs, which is kind of a taboo word. And, but you know, like where's the damn, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I really do struggle to understand the motivation. I think any legal framework and rules need to adapt. And ultimately that they need to just protect people from doing things. And it's felt to me for a while that U S based investors have been at a disadvantage for a long time in crypto and builders, not just crypto. the investors. Yeah. And, and builders now. And so I mean like, Doquan, yeah. we invited Doquan to come speak at Permissionless. He's like, why would I touch why would I set foot on American soil? It's like, why would I come? He's like, Yeah, of course I want to be at Permissionless. And he's like, But when I went to Masari's mainnet, you know, I got subpoenaed. Got served. Or yeah. just got served, whatever. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. got served. Yeah. I mean, uh, I do not understand. So let's just put things into context, right? The average bank interest rate is effectively 0 0.06, 0 0.03%. And in this case, 
you have to assume, okay, the BlockFi interest account is mostly for knowledgeable people that own some crypto. And I've, I've used it. And full disclosure, I'm an investor in BlockFi. So, you know, and I've used it. I've used your product. And I think it's a good product. Like, you deposit some, some Bitcoin, Ethereum, and you get, you know, you get some interest, right? Uh, which is orders of magnitude higher, you know, four or five, 10%, right? Where's the damage? I really do want to understand, like, what was the motivation? I, I understand they want to register something. They've offered it without registration. And so, okay, maybe it's a process issue, but it feels like a really high fine for a startup that employs a lot of people that has created a lot of benefit for folks. I mean, even before DeFi, you're not taking smart con- – okay, maybe you're taking – you're definitely taking some risk, right? BlockFi is a custodian. They're taking possession of your crypto, which is a whole like we can argue that that's good or bad. They've also, you know, lent out that crypto to other people to go long grayscale products, and there's a whole controversy sure. around the solvency of BlockFi as a company, and they keep raising money. I'm not. I don't want to get into that necessarily. Just just for the sake of this discussion, it's really just more: Are they finding them? And I'd love to understand this: Are they finding them? Because they've somehow figured out that BlockFi is not really a solvent institution. Like banks need to have a capital capital ratios, solvency ratios, based on Basel rules that were really have been tightened over the years since the global financial crisis, where Lehman went down and some other institutions were, went down, saying, "Look, banks need to be safer institutions and can't take this amount of risk." And so there's regulators come in and regularly inspect their operations and their solvency ratios. And I, I don't know if it's because of this, actually. I, I would love to understand. Because if it's not that, and if it's not a concern around the solvency of BlockFi or the disclosure that they gave to their pe- their as you as a customer depositing crypto into this and saying, listen, you, there is a very, high, very, very high risk of not actually, of them not returning your crypto, then I could understand that. But if it's not that, then this to me feels very, very unfair. Because you understand the risks of the same that you deposit into Coinbase. You understand the risk of depositing in a, an institution, which I think BlockFi actually uses Gemini, I think, as a custodian. I, 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 I want to say that. Or, or uses someone else as a custodian. I, I don't know. But, um, yeah, it, it, feels, it feels unfair. All right, friends, quick break to share some exciting updates from Avalanche, one of the leading L1s. First, the Particle NFT sale powered by Avalanche. Particle has fractionalized high-end art into 10,000 NFTs, the first piece being Banksy's. Love is in the air. Check it out, particlecollection.com. Number two, an ILO, Initial Litigation Offering, has started on Avalanche in partnership with Rival, Rival with a Y, a community fundraising platform for court cases. Really interesting use case there. Uh, number three, enterprise partnerships growing on Avalanche. Deloitte recently partnered with them to optimize logistics around natural disaster relief and claims payouts. MasterCard also tapped them to help accelerate crypto startups. Uh, number four, last but not least, I got an early look at a report from the Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute that shows the energy usage of various L1s. Avalanche came out very low in terms of total energy usage relative to other L1s. Thank you, Avalanche. Big thanks for sponsoring Empire. Now, let's get back to the show. I know. And so there's this, there's also a second idea here. It's like, it's not a fair distribution of penalty, right? Like Block One. Block One raised, not to call out anyone, but I'll call out Block One. They raised $4 billion in an ICO. They got a little slap on the hand, right? $24 million fine. $4 billion raised in an ICO. And SEC's like a little slap on the hand, 24 million bucks. BlockFi gives millions of customers, uh, you know, five to 10% yield when their banks are giving them 0.05% yield in a 5% inflation world. And the SEC says evil bastards, $100 million fine. And there, I think there are two main reasons why why the fine actually came down. Um, and again, like we, we can bring like Zach or Flora on the podcast. I'm sure they'd love, love to join us. But I think one of them is because they, the SEC believes that these interest-bearing accounts can be um, are securities, actually. Um, that like crypto yield products are securities. Like I remember when Coinbase, Coinbase wanted to launch a lending product like BlockFi's and the SEC told it not to. And so, so it didn't. Uh, 
and that and they and it's because they believe it's a security but really i mean i think at the end of the day you're kind of hurting hurting the consumer here i think everyone listening to the podcast will agree with that what i want to get your take on is right now it feels like there are three options that you have as a crypto firm and you've got how many angel investments do you have are you comfortable sharing that a lot okay you've got a lot um there's kind of three approaches and i want to see what you if you're if you have a founder or any of your portfolio companies are listening to this what approach would you take number one you basically try to make yourself as immune as possible to u.s regulation by setting up abroad you run yourself as this like dao or decentralized entity set up like i don't know far far away from the u.s there's risks with that but like so far that's worked uh second you try to be as law abiding as possible right? Kind of like maybe Coinbase. Coinbase wants to launch this uh, lending product like BlockFi's. SEC says, don't, you don't. Um, or like Facebook, right? Facebook wanted to launch a stable coin. It gave the regulators a lot of chances to say no. The regulators did say no. And now Facebook's stable coin dream is dead. And they, I think, sold it to Silver Silvergate or something like that. And then there's somewhere in the middle, right? Which is like, you kind of move fast and it's like you just like keep doing stuff but you stake out these like expensive legal positions and uh, every time the sec says you broke the law you get a little more information and you're going to pay a 10 million dollar fine and keep getting slaps on the wrist but you can keep getting users uh and actually get your product to market which one of those three are you recommending to your portcos obviously you're not a lawyer obviously you're probably not actually the one giving legal advice but what do you think is best but I have spent a lot of time with regulators in the U.S. I've spent a lot of time with legal folks. My advice is always the same. Which I don't like to give advice, but my my approach is always the same, which is make sure that no one's getting hurt. Consumer protection is number one. Like, just don't do stupid stuff. You know what I mean? Have right disclosures, education. If it's a sophisticated financial product, have proper amounts of disclaimers, disclosures, you know, guardrails or whatever right geofencing all this stuff and the second one is based on precedent particularly around the guidance around ethereum not being a security right has been decentralized as fast as physically possible and make sure that like that should always be the approach right which is no one should control and have particular right to, to change stuff not only for regulatory stuff but also just generally trust right you know, okay deploy the code sometimes you want to be able to have certain guardrails like do audits do stuff but decentralize as fast as possible and have a very clear roadmap to do that uh as long as it coincides with obviously you know if there if something goes wrong the code if there's a bug you know be able to sh- like shut it down um but I think like that's my number one approach as it relates to like where to build. I mean, you know, the answer to that, like it is, I don't think anyone's gotten like sufficient clarity. Like why spend $10 million? Okay. You're, you're going to do a $10 million raise. You, you try to get any reasonable advice in the U S and it costs you like half your round. I mean, the answer is pretty clear. Like, no, don't do that. Right. Just do the right thing. And so, I have observed like Solana, for instance, all these different teams have just decent, these have been distributing and like their resources, their talent has gone away. It's gone to places like Berlin and Lisbon and London. I'll give you an example. I was back in the day. I, uh, so the proof of stake Alliance, which now is one a case in the IRS to like treat staking awards. So I started that with Evan way back. Evan used to work, uh, at a, uh like we we're running validator notes and we said, Oh, we need clarity. We tried to get in touch. We actually went and met with the SEC and wanted to say, hey, how do you think about proof of stake? And they actually were reasonably very knowledgeable, like Valerie, which is a crypto star back then. I don't know if she's still today. Like, is an engineer by training, really smart. She knew a lot. She knew every company in that meeting in San Francisco. And I wasn't expecting to meet with her. But we never got clarity. And then I was in London, and we reached out to the FCA. We got an answer in a week. Clear. They were like, this this is okay. At least as we understand it, you've explained it, this is okay. You never get that type of response from a U.S. regulator. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, they never give this type of response. They're just sort of like, safe harbor is the closest thing that you can get, which is good, but it costs so much because it's such a, an ordeal to get. And the only people that have been profiting from all of this is very few law firms that just can get away with charging super high fees. 
And that just that just stifles innovation in the U.S. It's unreasonable. So anyways, just a little bit of anecdotes and context there. All this to say that my best advice is do the right thing, which is protect consumers. If you're front facing, just protect them. Do the right thing, but decentralize as quickly as possible. And those two are very closely tied together, right? Let's move on to social tokens. Um, so you missed a good episode the other day with uh, Tom Um over at uh, over at Jane Street. Um, and one thing we talked about over at the uh, at the end of the show was uh, social tokens. And um, so I guess there are two just to set the set the narrative here and set the tone. Like there are two types of social tokens, right? There's like community social tokens, and that might be maybe a friends with benefits, where like you buy the token and you get access to the community. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about like personal creator tokens. Uh, it hasn't really taken off. There's been like false starts, right? It's like Whale. I mean, like Alex did it. Alex uh, Massmedge, whatever his uh-huh. name is. Um, I like that guy. Coin Artist did it to incentivize engagement, connect with the fans. Uh, RAC Rack built a platform and kind of direct distribution channel through through. Actually, I think his personal token is the first personal token to get listed on Coinbase, which is pretty cool. But um, personal tokens basically allow you to are just tokens centered around people right and they allow um they essentially you're you're allowing someone or speculators or the market to go long or short a person and the way that the world works right now you're allowed to go long you're kind of like morally allowed to go long or short people through startups and companies they built and their merch and art and things like that but like you can't directly buy or sell someone right and that almost sounds weird. Uh, it's like no, more, sir, that uh, sounds uh, like slavery. Well, well, okay. Well, no. Well, to be fair, no. But that's what have, I'm getting at. There's like a moral. Yeah. There's like a moral. Impl- there's like um. There's just some things that we don't accept as society, right? And that is where it's kind of like you, we you just don't do that. And social tokens, I think, are going to be one of those things where it's like that just feels like something we don't want to do. But we're definitely going to do it anyways because you know we love speculation and things like that. Um, mm. Here's where this. What were actually? Let me before I jump into it. What do you think? What do you think of social tokens? What What's your prediction for so, social tokens this year? So I think there there will be very different types of social tokens. I think we need better standards. Uh, I spoke with Alex back in in the day, and I think he's deprecated his token. And I asked him like, what What rights does this token confer upon holders? You know, um, is it like uh, like I, what is it like student loans? There's a very specific type of product. Like this is like Lambda School, right? Lambda School essentially is for anyone that you, you can you can loan you can essentially I think support students. They're going to get technical training and then they uh, there's like a guaranteed payment stream, right? They're going to give you ten percent of their earnings for X amount of years to repay the loan and then some, right? And you get a certain return and it can be pretty attractive, right? The it's like a high yield. It's like sort of like a very risky type of loan. Fine. Okay, I get it. By the way, do you know that Lambda a, School flips that to hedge funds? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a massive market, right? It's a, yeah, it, yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting product. And I actually like that model more so than like student loans of the US government, which, you know, is very problematic. Right, inco- ISA, income sharing agreement. ISA, income sharing agreement. Exactly, ISA. So I think like initially I was like, okay, fine. Like a, a social token can be, an ISA can be expressed as a social token. The issue though is, how do you enforce it? And I told Alex, okay, like, he's like, oh, well, you know, like, I just, in good faith, I'm just going to, like, give people back whatever I make over the next five years. And I said, well, how do I verify that? How do I know that? How do I know you don't have side hustles? Um, now, imagine a world where everything that you do is on chain. Your actions, you get paid on chain, everything, you, there's a very specific wallet. Yeah, okay, maybe you can verify a lot of this stuff and it gets directed through the smart contract and the ISA is executed and you earn a certain amount and there's, you know, it's a very transparent system and you understand that. Okay, fine. You can still argue credit can be, is difficult to enforce. You know, you can go to court with this stuff. You know, blockchains and digital signatures are increasingly acknowledged and, you know, you it's sort of an open law. Like, you can go to court with this stuff, right? Uh, I don't know. I, I, struggle to see this version of the world playing out maybe just i don't know it's too messy um where i do think it's sort of more in the direction that things are going to express themselves it's like nfts right if you're an artist 
you issue NFTs, that's kind of like your social token. Like that's your currency. Like you, you have your loyal fans that they can trade. Uh, so I actually experiment with this in December. I, I gifted people randomly. I said, Hey, I'm going to, um, I'm going to give time is one of the best gifts. And so I'm going to give people 30 minute calls this year. I initially said 10 and then I grew it to 25 and then I still need to mint these NFTs and I'm going to issue them to them and they can burn the NFT and I'll give them 30 minutes of my time. I mean, it's not like a social token, but I've never minted NFTs. I don't have any NFTs tied to my name, but I'll have a deployer address and people know it's that and they can burn that NFT. So like, I guess that's a version of a social token. Did, did you do this? Uh, yeah, I would like, I've selected 25 people. Oh. I'm, I've been too busy running this podcast and other stuff, but I, I it's on my top. I'll my blame list. it on I'm me. Going, All right. I'm going to blame it on you. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I thought it was going to be an interesting experiment for me to say, I don't know if people are going to want to trade this NFT. I don't even know how much worth, like my time is worth. I, I don't, see that no but, the, no, but that's I mean? interesting like, right because like you you mint 25 of those and if i am long santi what i could and i mint it for like an eth or something for like 30 minutes of your time what i would if i want the t- if i want the call with you that i'm going to take the call but if i'm like oh this guy's about to blow up i'm going to hold that and right what would you pay for uh 30 minutes of i don't know right alan howard's time or like jeff bezos's time sorry to say but probably more than they someone would pay for your time so if someone is long going long Santi? Yeah, dagger, dagger. dagger. But if someone, this is but, this is how you treat me. Listen, <laughs> you understand this relationship? Like, no, I'm, but see, I'd be a buy, I'd buy, I'd buy that shit, and I'd hold, I'd hold. I'm not taking the thirty minute well, call. I'm holding because I think you remember the closest analog. So you remember Big, Big Cloud now? Deso, I think they've rebranded. Yes. So you essentially, kind of like a social token, right? People could buy, you, you know, tie to your Twitter profile i guess number of followers that you go along the nabal coin or the chris dixon coin or the lady gaga coin or, or whatever kind of like social token i have a reputation question for you i they you know how they added like big twitter people to the account and you could claim your tokens if you tweet it out they added my account and there was like seventeen thousand dollars in that account there was like i think it was like between 15 and twenty-five thousand dollars in that account and i you, there was no there's no exchange back then to do it on I think now they trade on like blockchain.com but I knew an OTC guy who was who was making the markets and in, in the bitclout tokens and so I could have if I wanted to claimed my account on bitclout tw- and tweeted it out but then it becomes a question of like how much how how damaging is that to your reputation uh, and I decided not to do it um, but I'm like that was probably a stupid decision that was like 20 free 20k yeah you know I there was this idea in in behavioral economics that, and just generally like studying human psychology, which is some things you don't want to put financial value to. Uh, there are like doing charity work. You never want to be visit financially comp. I, I know it's like kind of like oxymoronic, like you're doing charity and then you get paid like, wait, what? But like there are certain things that you do out of the goodness of your heart or because you want to just feel good. And the minute that you introduce monetary incentives, it, it corrupts like this, this goodness intention and sacrosanct relationship with why we do certain things. It's like at some point, humans are intrinsically motivated beyond just monetary gain. And it does put into question in the social context, like Steam it, right? Or like, what was this platform? Like, I don't want to, I tweet because I find stuff interesting and I love engaging with people and I don't tweet because I want to make money. Like, you know what I mean? Like, don't pay me for my tweets. It feels dirty. I don't know. I'm not a, like, I'm, but certainly some influencers do it. But it, I feel like people notice that. And I think it corrupts the goodness of why we somehow just intrinsically do things. And I worry that that's going to be the case about social generally, not just social tokens, just social applications where you have a very clear token and value that is being transacted over things that sometimes you don't want to have you don't want to know what your tweets are worth you know what i mean like it no like i don't want to get there i don't want to cross that line some do but others don't all right so let me let me play out a couple scenarios here here's the good here's the good use case of social tokens it's I, i love actually what you said about um about lambda school right if i'm like 
if I'm like 22 and I just graduated college and I want to launch a startup or something like that, or like I want to get in, or maybe I'm 18. I want to go to a college that's really expensive and I don't have the funds to go. I can issue, maybe I can issue social tokens in myself and that maybe gives a dividend for the next five years of my life or something based on my earnings. Uh, you know, if I, if I make a hundred K out of college, I give back 10% of that to the token holders for the next five years. And maybe there's upside on the token, something like that. That's one use case. Another maybe positive use case is, do you are you on Instagram, Santi? Or like I, I yeah, are you on Instagram? No, very rarely. Okay, well, let's maybe take music because I know you like music. There's basically, you know, you know that feeling with your friends where you find an artist or a musician really early, and you're like, I found them, and then they blow up, and you're like, I found them early. Or it's like it's I don't know, it's like that with Instagram accounts too. It's like I I was following that person when they had like two thousand followers, now they have like two million. It's like I found that, and like that is a connection, right? You, you, you love showing that off. And what if there was a way to basically bet on that per person? And so that's kind of the upside of social tokens. But see, but that should be an NFT because an NFT represents when you discover them. Okay. You can prove that. Okay. In your wallet, you have the token and you bought Ethereum in 24. What's the difference okay, between great. NFTs and social tokens? Why are we, what's the, no, 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 just... no. What I'm saying is one, because there could be, there could be any, it could be a fungible and non-fungible. I think social tokens should be non-fungible because they express specific moments. Okay, if you go to a, if you go to an Avicii, I love Avicii. I started seeing Avicii in New York. Like I saw Avicii super early on before he blew up. He could have minted an NFT back in the day when he was playing it at like dive bars in Oslo or whatever, or Sweden, where he was from, right? I think. And it would have been nice to have an NFT represent that particular concert. And maybe there's music attached to that. NFT. It'd be great to encapsulate this memento and that's what i think gives value to these social interactions like okay if it's an erc20 like a diavici token well the idea of freely trading this token is like meh you know it's like whatever an nft has a lot of emotional cachet and it represents a unique you know digital yeah, but it's not all footprint. encompassing of that person like it's it has emotional value to you it, it that that's more like a um that's more like a like a jersey of like Barry Bonds when he played sure. in the 2002 Fine. World Series or something, or like and a baseball like, card. Yeah, yeah, no, but no, uh, no, a baseball well, card no, would like be more baseball. like a social token, I think. Kind of, yeah, uh, yeah, okay, sure. Maybe we're trying to draw uh, analogies to the physical world when it shouldn't be, but like, uh, but okay, so let's 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 get past the analogy. I think you will. Do you, do you think that we will see social tokens where they're where they're fungible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Well, think of it this way. You you alluded to it earlier. I, I I have this idea. Okay, what if it would be kind of cool to go long a specific department within a company? Hey, I want to invest behind Google's VC team or Google's engineering team, not their marketing team. I mean, give me a social token that represents all of these people <laughs> or all yeah. the engineers in the valley across companies. That would be pretty interesting. So you know what? I, so agreed. You know what I think is cooler is I there's all these companies in crypto. We know them. There are people inside who are absolute rock stars, but they're like 23 and they just haven't been given the opportunity yet. It's maybe like the software engineer or like the marketing strategist or the designer. I'm like, I, I can see people. I'm like, you are going to blow up. I want to invest in you, but I don't want to invest in your company because like, I don't like the company, but, I, but you are going to be huge. One day you're going to start a company. You're going you're gonna to be mm-hmm. big. There should be a way to go long that person. But the counter to what I'm saying is, Damn, that gets really nasty if you can go short a person, right? And like, let's let's extend this out. Um, I know by nature of the hard time that you give me, I knew you'd be shorting me right now because I missed two episodes. So yeah, I would be shorting like, you. I'm like, where the hell? Is, I'm short. So, but here's what happens when you short someone: you can, we cannot, as a society, allow people to short others via social tokens, or else you create really awful incentives, right? They're like, oh, it's like prediction markets. Okay, Trump. You have a prediction market on Trump winning the election, or uh, I don't know, maybe that puts a bounty on your head. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Is I just shorted you with my life savings, and I'm now I'm hiring an assassin. I'm going to make a bunch of money, but now you're dead. So, but, but like that, but that, and so you're like, oh, that's crazy. That would never happen. There's this thing that no, Matt no, Levine no. wrote about like three years ago, which is um, hedge funds taking out credit default swap insurance on company debt and then pushing the company to 
default, right? So a company has loans. You can take out insurance on those loans, like credit default swaps. Hedge funds were buying the insurance and then they go to the company and they're like, hey, wink, wink, don't pay back the loan on time. Then the insurance triggers, then they get paid out. And then some, you can't directly give that to the company, some windfall of it. But what they were doing is they were like kicking it back to the company in the form of good financing when you come out of bankruptcy. So they're like, look, you're going to go through bankruptcy. It's a total pain in the ass. But when you refinance the company, we're going to hook you up with good financing. So there's so many, there's so many, we, we haven't made movie uh, references in a while. The Gone Girl, there's so many movies about this, right? That, oh, like Man on Fire. They take kidnap yeah. insurance and then like, you know, like it's all inside jobs, right? Like if you're an athlete, you insure your arm, then you break your arm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't, <laughs> it is, it is the, the nasty, not so clear areas of, of technology. Yeah. So yeah. Cause like, okay, let's say a hedge fund came to me. They're like, Hey, I just had a social token. They're like, I just put out a billion dollars sh- uh, short on me. And they're <laughs> like, I want you to make Blockworks go bankrupt tomorrow because then the price of the Yano token is going to fall. But when you... And they're like, we'll kick back 20% of that. And I'm like, damn, that's 200 million bucks. And then there's an equation in my head like, will I make more from Blockworks or 200 million that this hedge fund is going to give me if my price of the token goes down? Like the 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 scenario that you just... It's dark, the scenario you just... There wouldn't be that amount of... There wouldn't... You wouldn't be able to create that. Look, I'm not on you, but just... It no, the liquidity, really, really, it yeah. the liquidity is the issue yeah, yeah, with yeah. all these things, which is kind of the optimist side of me says like, it's going to be really expensive to put on this short because no one's going to want to take the count. Like, you know where there's like, a liquid market though? Long short Kim Kardashian. Like people are trading yeah, that all, oh, yeah, all day. T- to- yeah. Totally, totally, totally. Or like presidents, heads of state, like famous people for sure. Right. Um, it, it all, it kind of puts into question though, this idea of like, what do they know that I don't? very quickly you're just like okay wait a minute there's one person that puts a short on the head of state of sierra leone okay maybe you want to look at the uh, there's probably going to be a coup d'etat like tomorrow like get <laughs> yeah, out or you just sierra text leone. all your friends be like yo buy my social token i'm about to announce like my new company tomorrow yeah it's insider trading yeah yeah. yeah, but how do you, yes, exactly. But then it's like, what, can you not tell your friends about like personal news because it's insider trading? All right, um, we need to schedule an hour and a half for these things, not one hour. I'm just going to apologize in advance to people. I do have to jump in five minutes. So we'll wrap this up in a sec. The last thing I want to get your take on Santi is uh, M&A, DeFi native M&A. Two weeks ago, Psy Options acquired Tap Finance. Last week, Friction um, acquired Channel RFQ. Right, Friction really interesting acquisition. Both of them are just trying to build like really amazing option shops uh, and just options on top of Solana. Um, what's your take on, I guess, either both of these deals, either of these deals, uh, DeFi, M&A, what, what's your thought on this? Yeah, super interesting. Obviously, like um, a lot of times you don't need to acquire companies because you can, through composability, these things like connect each other atomically, but it feels to me more like an acqui- like an acquihire. Um, you know, the in, in friction's case like i think it just is very organic way to just bring on really smart people that have built an interesting product and just very nicely fits into their roadmap and instead of waiting six months to build it like just acquire a team boom and so i think like a lot of these are i look at them as acqui hires talent is probably the scarcest talent and attention but talent for a team is really scarce but as soon as you find people that are building something that it's like six months ahead of what you want to do then just bring them on and then it accelerates your timeline uh, and engineering resources are super, super hard to, to 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 come by, and so I think a lot of the M and A activity in crypto thus far has been, uh, you know, acquiring human capital, which is the the, the by far the scarcest resource out there. Um, I mean, I've I've increasingly been looking for things like Rabbit Hole and companies like this that will onboard the next, you know, Joe Lubin back in Consensus in in DevCon, the last one said, look, I want to bring onboard a million developers. It's a very tall order, but as soon as we are able to do that you know, will come along. But for now, that is the scarcest resource, the most valuable and the scarcest resource. So a lot of the seminar activity has been driven uh, largely to to acquire these dev teams that are super talented. I just had a thought that's like kind of related, but not really related. Why aren't company stock options issued as, what if company stock options were issued as NFTs and they became, and you could just bake the like four-year vest, one-year cliff into the cap tape, uh, into the uh, smart contract? And uh, they should and they will. Because it is stock options are the messiest thing, and the thing that if you don't exercise, it's a clusterfuck. It's an and absolute Carta's built, nightmare. 
Card has built this business, and I think like it is due for reinventing it on crypto rails. And I think there's two or three. The problem is like Card has built it. Like Card is the equivalent of building like Venmo, right? Where or Venmo is a bad example because it's B two C, but like you're still building on these rails that were created in the 1970s. On a on a a patchwork of uh, okay, if if you have all company equity expressive tokens, and it's super super easy to do this stuff, right? But in NFTs, are there's really no reason why we shouldn't move to a world where we should stop using like pen and paper and migrate everything to digital signatures in an immutable blockchain. And I think we can do that. Obviously we need some privacy, but we can do this. Cause you know, okay. The, the issue with NFTs is that once everyone sees you, you can basically see all these stock options, right. And who's getting what, and it becomes messy and it's like, uh, but yeah. Oh, transparency inside company is such a bad thing. Um, <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> Private. Okay. Uh, one, one interesting thing about the DeFi acquisitions is they're starting to be a disconnection between public and private markets. So for the last 12 months, basically public and private markets were kind of moving in lockstep and both markets were just like wildly pumped up. And then what's happening is now the public markets are getting hit and especially tech stocks are getting dinged and, um, the private markets the earlier you go, the more uncorrelated they are. So like the late, so what happens is like the public private crossover funds, like the big tigers and ultimators and things like that. They're just like their public stuff gets hit. And then like their late stage privates, like the series D and series E, they have to kind of not knock those at a little bit of a haircut. But when you go back to like the seed stage rounds, those still have not taken a haircut at all. But eventually those, that probably should trickle down, but but we'll see, right? Private markets inherently over the last like 15 years are maybe forever, I don't know, are valued higher than public markets. Does this relationship exist in company equity versus public tokens of companies? Like, in, is there this still, is there this relationship in crypto? Yeah, well, two things. One, the, the 20 million standard Y Combinator deal is now 50 at least in crypto, like smart teams now raising 50 first round. It's gone up materially uh, or 30. And I think that might come down in a bear market. That will come down for sure. But it's been pretty big disconnect. Like raising a first check 50 million is really high. Like I was investing in stuff like a year and a half ago with like 10, five. I mean, like how do all of a sudden we, I understand there's inflation, but come on, like that, that's pretty high to me. Right. Uh, and and there has been a disconnect. I think, like obviously, you know, Bill Ty said an episode, and I believe it, which is I've always felt super comfortable investing in really smart teams that have a low, reasonably low burn rate at the first first check in. But still, you know, I I would argue like the risk profile is still pretty high, and you're left wondering. I've personally have wondered of my allocation, as you know, I'm more very liquid, super early stage. That's where I that's my that's my edge. That's what I love. But I am left wondering, like, am I getting paid enough for the level of risk that I'm taking? And sometimes, like, going long ETH or Bitcoin right now is not – I don't know. Like, that's always the comp, right? Because outperforming ETH and Bitcoin is is the benchmark. And I do wonder if you're investing at something north of 50, it's like the oxygen level at that level is pretty low. It is. And so you're still taking a lot of risk. And so I've passed on and I haven't seen that many interesting early stage deals because the valuations are free. And it just forces me to be more disciplined uh, because it's difficult to take a bet uh, on these teams at 75 million, $100 million valuations. Like, come on, guys. Like, you haven't built a product. Like, I understand you're good builders, but I don't know you enough. I'd rather go long ETH or Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the counter argument, though, is that in crypto, uh, his, history would say that you should invest in every single one of those companies if they have Correct. a token. Just his, that's Correct. what, right? Traditional Correct. venture, you, you invest in 10 companies, six or seven of them might be duds. Two of them might be flat or be up a little, but one's going to return the fund. That's like the stereotypical uh, narrative around traditional VC. In crypto VC, it's like you invest in 30 companies, 28 of them are going to make money. Um, at least yeah, in the short You never term. lost on, you probably, if you've gone long on every single ICO in 2017, and you held for a reasonable time, you wouldn't have lost money on probably any of them, unless they were scammed. Ooh, I don't actually know about that. Those are the ICOs. I'm talking about like the token projects of the last maybe 36 months. No, no, I understand. I'm, I'm just okay, saying okay. what you just said is true for 2017. I think by that analogy, you, you're you supposed to make bets on as many teams as possible at a reasonable like sub-50 valuation. Like, because it's sort of like... 
yeah. a really an interesting bet. Precedent would say, and data with historical data would say, there's a reasonably high. There's a there's a higher probability of not losing your money versus traditional venture. And so you're willing to loosen a little bit of the constraint around going a little bit, stretching a little bit more in the valuation because you get liquidity. It's sort of liquid venture and right. lockup schedules and you can hedge with a perp and all this stuff. Like, I get it. But still. Uh, the best news of the week was by far Transmission 1-1, Transmissions 11. Big shout out to you. Uh, joined re- as a research engineer at Paradigm. Why is this cool news? Because... You guys should check out the Paradigm recent blog post, uh, Transitions 11, at the very end of it. In the last line, it says, in his spare time, he attends high school in California. So speaking of social tokens, I'm going long. Transmission 11 social token. Absolutely. I think, yeah, kudos to that. And the entire, what is it, the Rari team? Unbelievable. This just tells you yeah. talent and education is such an archaic concept. They're smart guys. Everyone want to cover that in the uh, 15 seconds yeah, that we have left let, here? <laughs> let's cover the 15 seconds. Age has always been a very stupid barometer to understand knowledge and experience. And I think especially, especially in areas of high innovation where the smartest people are sometimes the youngest and old people might say, oh, you don't have enough gray hair. It's just a bullshit proxy. It's like right. sometimes you do need experience. But in this industry, you can come in here and a message to anyone you can learn this stuff pretty quickly. It's open. People will help you. And you don't need 50 years of experience. In fact, sometimes it gets in the way. So I'm happy for him and I'm happy for a lot of people out there in Web3 and everywhere that are just, you know, young and talented. And age is never should never be the number one parameter by which you judge people. Agreed. Santi, you're the man. I will talk to you next week, my friend. I hope you guys enjoyed. Thank you, everyone. Take care.